Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hi, listeners. So glad that you could join me again today for another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know you all are so busy, and I really am grateful for you taking the time to listen. Today's guest is well worth the listen. Dr. Andy Garner is a clinical professor of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and a primary care pediatrician with University Hospitals Medical Practices in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Garner is a product of the Medical Scientist Training Program at CWRU and the Pediatric Residency Training Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Garner is the co-author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Original and Recently Revised Policy Statement on Childhood Toxic Stress. He has also co-authored an AAP-published book entitled Thinking Developmentally, a great read, by the way. Dr. Garner is a past president of the Ohio chapter of the AAP, and he has served on several AAP leadership work groups, including early brain and child development, epigenetics, and poverty. Dr. Garner is passionate about promoting the safe, stable, and nurturing relationships that buffer toxic stress and build the rudiments of resilience. This is a really important conversation, and I'm so grateful that Andy and I met. Uh, Our paths crossed in the AAP when he was president of the Ohio chapter and I was president of the Michigan chapter. And again, this is just another reason why belonging to the American Academy of Pediatrics has been so important to me. Again, they are not sponsoring this podcast, but it is such an important part of my life. I just can't resist the shout out. So sit back and enjoy this conversation because it is really important and think about ways that you might be able to implement change. Hi, Andy. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I am so happy to have you here. I understand you're quite the uh, on-air personality since this uh, (laughs) policy statements come out. You're everywhere. (laughs) Well, it's good. It's good to have opportunities to talk about relational health. Yeah, I didn't realize until I sat on the board of directors uh, committee on policy, how much work goes into these policy statements. So kudos to you. It's a, a, I think it's a labor of love and lots of, lots of writing and rewriting. It is, it is, you know, they, they talk about, it's like making sausage, right? (laughs) You know, you take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and lots of people's recommendations and, and uh, it definitely improves the product in the end, but it definitely is a a labor of love. And so I'm so happy and relieved that it's out and I'm grateful for everyone's input. Well, it's, it's really important. And I think pediatricians that are out there should know how much work goes into these. And, and again, thank you for your time. Well, let's just dive right in. I just wanted to start briefly with why you chose to be a pediatrician. Well, I think there's probably two answers to that. There's a short answer and a long answer. <laughs> so the short answer is that I learned early on that I really liked working with kids. I, when I was a kid, I was a, a fish. During the summers, I'd spend all year swimming. I was always on the swim team and lifeguarding. And when I became old enough, then I started teaching swimming lessons. And I think that's 
that's when I really got hooked. I remember kids just, you know, holding on for dear life and trusting me to jump into the water. And I was totally hooked on working with kids and, and helping them face down scary situations. The longer story is the path to primary care, <laughs> because I was really always very interested in the interface between the brain and the mind. Um, and so when I was an undergrad, I, I was a psychobiology major. And then after college, I did an MD, PhD at Case, trying to understand the molecular mechanisms of brain development. Um, but that also led me to oncogenes and understanding um, how the genes I was studying also played a role in things like neuroblastoma. So I was convinced I was going to triple threat. I was going to do research and I was going to um, teach and I was going to uh, uh, do a Hemonc fellowship after residency. And at some point during uh, the second year of residency, when you start applying, my wife was like, we need to have a talk. Because my poor son, you know, was two years old and barely knew who I was. Um, and so for a while, I thought, well, I'd just do in a primary care for a year or so, you know, to, to, to get our, get our orient, get oriented. But, um, you know, here 21 years later, I'm still still really liking it I, because I, I like those ongoing intense relationships, which is what I think drew me to Hemonc in the first place. But primary care provides that as well. And, and there's always an opportunity to educate. And so there's, 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 there's never a dull moment. Who knew that you would be translating science into into practice right where you are? You take your brilliance and when you listen, when I've listened to you talk about this, I, I mean, I get a little lost in all of the bioscience there because that is not my jam. <laughs> so, and you just are so eloquent, but then you apply it to the reality that building relationships. And, and that's awesome. I, I think that's why we love primary care. There's nothing like watching a kid laugh, right? There's nothing better than that. And, and I appreciate your kind words. I think that, you know, when I first finished um, with the program, I think my MD-PhD program saw me as a failure <laughs> because I wasn't the triple threat, but I've sort of found my niche here in terms of trying to translate science into what we do clinically. Yeah. I don't think that you need to be feeling like a failure at all. I think you... <laughs> You uh, raised the bar, so. Um, oh, you're so kind. Well, listen, you and I actually have met many years ago and have been talking about toxic stress and ACEs since it sort of, you know, it kind of crept onto the scene. I mean, the the primary study was done in like 1999, way back in the day. And then it somehow kind of crept into pediatrics and then it kind of bloomed. But for those who might not know about ACEs and toxic or adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress, can you talk a little bit about what they are and how they affect children's well-being in a nutshell? Sure. So, you know, the original adverse childhood experiences study was led by Vincent Flitti and Robert Anda. And it was first, there have been many publications from this one study, but the first one I think came out in 1998. And they looked at 17,000 primarily white, primarily middle-class adults. Most of them were in their 50s in San Diego. And it was a retrospective study. So they asked them if prior to their 18th birthday, they experienced any of 10 different, what are now considered traditional ACEs. There were three measures of abuse, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, two measures of neglect, physical and emotional neglect, and then five measures of household dysfunction, things like mental substance abuse, parental mental illness, intimate partner violence, divorce, or an incarcerated family member. And so each person then would get one point for each of those categories. Um, and so that so each per, each participant would have an A score. And then they looked at the, the sort of associations with that A score with mental health outcomes, sexual health outcomes, 
physical health, economic outcomes, and, and even early death. And so, you know, I think it's important. I mean, the ACE study is something I think we need to understand, but we also need to understand its limitations. So, you know, there are issues with recall. So we know that if you've had some adversity in childhood, um, you tend to want to repress that. And so that may la- lower your ACE score. There's issues with redundancy. So if you were sexually assaulted once versus every day for a year, you still just get one point for that. And or that was repetition rather. And then redundancy is uh, more that there are more than one thing in each category. So if your mom, for example, was an alcoholic, but your dad did heroin, that's still just one point for, for substance abuse. But, but the point is an ACE score is actually a relative poor measure of a child's adversity. But nevertheless, they were able to show strong and dose-dependent associations between an A score and many outcomes down the line. And we're talking outcomes like decades later. And so that was sort of the intriguing part about the A study is that it, it sort of gave us a hint that, you know, what's happening in childhood doesn't stay in childhood, that, that there are things that are happening early on that are sort of coming biologically embedded and impacting outcomes down the line. Now, that being said, it's important to remember that an A score is not destiny, right? Remember, it's really been defined as uh, a a risk for poor outcomes at a population level. It doesn't tell us much about necessarily what's happening at the individual level for several reasons. One, there are many other factors like positive childhood experiences that also drive outcomes at the individual level. And there are many other ACEs other than traditional ones that drive poor outcomes like neighborhood violence and exposure to poverty and food insecurity and even racism. So in the policy statement, we talk about there being a wide spectrum of adversity. So when we talk about trauma, we tend to think about threatening catastrophic events like violence and abuse and bullying, but they're also going ongoing conditions that are associated with poor outcomes like, again, neighborhood violence and poverty and racism. So, So the important thing is that all those types of adversity, they all trigger a physiologic response, right? So it's very hard to measure stress and adversity by looking at the precipitant. That's a very subjective, um, but you can look at the response. And so if you look at the biological response, you can sort of divide that into positive stress um, stress responses to adversity, where there are safe, stable, nurturing relationships that help turn off that stress response. They're tolerable stress responses, but a little more strong and, and enduring, but there are safe, stable, nurturing relationships to help turn that off to prevent prolonged changes. And then there's this idea of toxic stress, right? So toxic stress responses are those where the response is prolonged, it's strong. And as a consequence, there actually are biological changes. And so toxic stress helps us understand then how ACEs and other adversities sort of get under our skin and become biologically embedded. They, they literally change who we are at the molecular, cellular, and behavioral levels. And we have examples of that in terms of changes in methylation patterns from molecular changes and changes in brain connectivity and then even changes in how we adapt and cope with stress. So the other thing to keep in mind about this wide spectrum diversity then is that they also make relational health more difficult, right? So relational, interpersonal violence and, and sort of being isolated and, ex- and excluded, um, and even just loneliness. They're sort of double whammies because they trigger a stress response and they move probably our most important buffer, which is um, those safe, stable, nurturing relationships that help us turn off the stress response, but but also adapt in a healthy manner. Well, that's kind of a, a lot, right? I, there were a couple of things that struck me that you said is that perhaps the original study underestimated some adversity because there were other things that it didn't take into account, like 
chronic abuse versus a one-time event, but also there were these other things like, you know, the death of a parent or poverty or racism. So that just sort of broadens the scope, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the point is that, you know, there's these traditional ACEs and I think, you know, there's been been a big push to understand what your ACE score is, but I think it's important we understand that's, that's, that's not the whole equation. We can't be defined by 10 bad things that have happened to us. We also have to consider that there are other adversities that are important, but even more than that, we have to start pivoting. And I think that's the main point of the policy statement is to start pivoting more towards acknowledging the relational health and those positive childhood experiences that, that tend to buffer adversity and, and also help us build resilience. And, and and you kind of summed it up in that ad, adversity is not destiny. And, and I like that because it feels hopeful. And for some of us that experienced some of those adversities, it's nice to know that, you know, you get to where you are if there are other people or experiences that lift you up. And so, so that it's not just like over, right? No, no, that's it. I think we, I think we have to be very careful when we start focusing on, on adversity. I mean, I think it's important to understand because it's played a role in who you are, but I think we need to be careful not to pathologize or victimize and and to say, well, how's that affected you? Because it may have affected you in a good way. It may have made you more empathic. It may have made you um, decide you want to change systems that are broken. And so, so I think that, yeah, we have to see the broader picture. And I think that's one of the major points of this new policy statement is that that toxic stress is critical framework to understand, particularly now in the midst of a pandemic, uh, as we're grappling with de- you know centuries of racism and widening uh, inequities. The concept of toxic stress has never been more relevant, but it's a deficits-based approach, right? It helps us understand what the problem is. It doesn't in itself point us towards solutions. And I think that's one of the points of the policy statement is that we want to try and start thinking a little bit more about relational health because relational health really helps us define the solution, right? That not only is the, the treatment for toxic stress and adversity, it's actually the prevention. That is a perfect segue. And there was one other thing I was going to sum up that I think you were saying in that adversity is who you are. However, it's not who you will ultimately be. Yeah. Exactly. There's some other things that impact who you are. And I like also what you said about, you know, out of your experiences comes strength things that have happened. I think I chose pediatrics because I wanted to keep kids safe. And I know that that stems from some things in my own uh, my own childhood. It doesn't make everything easy, but I think it makes me better at what I do. More empathic, sure. So let's let's talk a little bit about what you just said about toxic stress is this deficits-based model about what goes wrong and that the new policy statement is about relational health. It, it's a strengths-based model about what goes right. Yep. So let's let's talk a little bit more about safe, stable, nurturing relationships. And sure. does it does it take lots of those? Can you get by with one? So I think, I, so I'll get into that. I think, I, I think that, you know, the first safe, stable and nurturing, I think is sort of self-explanatory, right? I mean, the, the, those types of relationships are the ones that provide those sort of positive childhood experiences. And again, they, they buffer adversity. So when something bad happens to have those safe, stable, nurturing relationships offer consolation and to turn off the stress responses is critically important. But I think we sometimes forget that those safe, stable, nurturing relationships, that's the platform by which we learn new skills, right? So that's how we learn foundational skills that will allow us to be resilient. Now, I mean, I love the concept of being resilient in the sense of bouncing back from adversity, 
but it, it implies that there was an adversity in the first place. <laughs> no, one, you know, we don't want to really test our kids to see if they're resilient. We want to proactively build the skills and hope they don't need them, you know? I and mean, so we want to try and build those skills. So, so I think that there are two really important articles I would point people towards that Christina Bethel published in the last year that really emphasize the, the importance of relational health for not only buffering adversity, but really sort of helping kids to build skills and to flourish. So the first one was published in JAMA Peds, and they, they looked at significant adversity. So even if kids had ACE scores of four or more, they were less likely to have poor mental health adults if they had more positive childhood experiences. So they, if they felt safe, they felt connected, they felt supported by family and friends. So there's no question that those positive childhood experiences buffer adversity when it happens. And, and, and there's no question, like the ACE score, there's, a, there's a, a dosage effect there, which is what you're sort of getting at is the, the more the merrier, right? The more of those positive childhood experiences, the more we're able to buffer adversity if and when it happens. But the second article was really a light bulb moment for me. It was published in Health Affairs, sort of goes a step further and it showed that family resilience and connection, you know, the, the ability of the family to come together, think positive, to work together, to be optimistic, and to know that, the, that they can get through it together, that actually helps kids to flourish. And so she used this measure of flourishing, which is actually sort of a rough measure, measure of executive function, right? The ability, the ability to persevere and get things done, to be curious and to remain in control of your emotions. I think that's sort of what we want for all kids. And what she showed was that kids with high adversity, but high family resilience and connection, more of those kids were flourishing than kids with low adversity, but also low family resilience and connection. So that for me was a real light bulb moment because we're just focusing, even just focusing on ACE scores and adversity, but this is clearly showing us that if we're only looking at the adversity, we're really missing half the equation. All kids, but particularly kids with adversity, need those safe, stable, nurturing relationships and positive childhood experiences to thrive. Wow. That, that's really very, very interesting. So let me see if I got that right. So you could have a lot of bad things happen, but if you had this at its core, these relationships in the family that ultimately you could do okay. If, on the, if on the flip side, you didn't have that much adversity, but you didn't have those kind of really rich relationships in your family. So maybe people were... I don't want to use the, the expression, but not cold, but but just not that kind of supportive family. They wouldn't do great. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that I think so, you know, so again, this is just looking at this particular data, but I think what it what it what it tells us is that adversity and positive nurturing experiences are not two ends of the same spectrum. They're actually two completely different axes, right? So if you consider a kid with a high A score, we might pretend they may fare relatively poorly. And if we factor in that they've had few positive experiences, we might predict that they would fare even more poorly. But if we consider that they have had large doses of positive experiences, Bethel's data suggests that they may actually fare relatively well. So adversity is not destiny. But like you pointed out, the converse is also true. And I think this is critically important because we tend to think about high ACE scores and adversity as just being those kids, right? You know, yeah. Uh, if there is low adversity, that's not a guarantee of success, right? We might predict that kids with low adversity might fare well and that kids with low adversity plus positive experiences might fare even better. But Bethel's data shows that kids who have had low adversity but also have few positive experiences may actually fare relatively poorly. 
So all kids need positive experiences to thrive. Those so safe, stable, nurturing relationships, the policy statement, those are bio, says that those are biological necessities, right? Kids must feel safe, connected, and supported, not only to buffer adversity, but also to build the skills needed to be resilient. So as a pediatrician, how do you do that? I mean, I guess there's, you know, I think there's a lot of stumbling over. Do we screen for ACEs? Do we screen for social determinants of health? And somehow out of that, we do something about that. And and that's complicated. And it's hard to kind of prepare for that. Or, you know, so what do you do about it? Right. And then there's the other part. How do you assess the strength of that family system in terms of are they capable of promoting positive experiences? And if they're not, how do you help them with that? Right. So there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I think that I see ACE scores. I see social determinants of health. I see poverty, racism uh, as all being potential barriers to relational health. And so I think that, that the way you try to unpack this, because there's so much, there, there's so much to talk about, you know, that, that in terms of strategies and skills we can use that, that it gets a little overwhelming. And so. I think that from my own simple mind, I try to organize things along a public health approach, right? Because there's so many things to do. Where do I start? How, which, how do I even organize these different potential interventions? So let's just briefly, you know, think about what a public health approach says. Basically, it says there's no one-off magic bullets, right? We need layered approaches. And if you recall the public health pyramid, you know, you've got sort of universal primary preventions. They sort of form the base. Um, then you got targeted secondary interventions for those that are higher risk. Uh, and then you've got sort of indicated treatments, which are sort of the tertiary prevention to prevent the disease from progressing in the, uh, down the line. So if you think about how we apply that to like lead poisoning, you know, starting at the top of the pyramid, we're going to do chelation, right? So if someone clearly has lead poisoning, we're going to chelate them. And then secondary preventions, we're going to try and target those at risk by, depending on your zip code, we're going to do uh, lead-based risk screening, right? And then that the primary prevention, that the foundation of, of the whole approach, though, is to abate lead and get rid of it out of paint and gas and, and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, particularly with what happened there in Michigan, you know, we don't want to just chelate and we don't want to just screen, we actually want to get rid of the risk in the, of lead in the water, right? So universal primary preventions are the foundation. So I think we apply that to toxic stress, you know, again, talk, talking about the top of the pyramid there, there are interventions we can do for kids that have experienced significant adversity and are experiencing toxic stress. So, and things like attachment and biobehavioral catch-up and child-parent psychotherapy and parent-child interaction therapy and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, these are all evidence-based treatments for kids that have experienced significant adversity. So there's no question we need to treat it when we see it, but we want to go upstream a little bit. And that's where we get into, like you're suggesting a little bit of fuzziness in terms of which screen should we do? What should we be testing for? And I think that's the problem is going to vary a great deal on the population you're serving, where you're serving. So certainly parent and childhood ACEs are something that we should probably know about, whether or not you are in a place where you can actually implement a screen is a different story. Implementing screening is, is a whole other uh, talk we can talk about, that it's a process, right? And it's an opportunity to, to deepen the relationship. And it, it, it's not so much a procedural thing as much as a tool to, to incre increase the, the relationship. And then there are uh, lots of research now looking at biomarkers, trying to have clinic-friendly biomarkers for looking maybe at methylation patterns or looking at hormonal levels, interleukin levels, looking at telomere those sorts of things. Those are just research-based at, at this point, but at some point down the line, it may very well be that I'm concerned about 
got this kid and I'm going to send, just like you'd send a celiac panel, you may send a, a toxic stress panel off and, and be able to determine whether or not this kid has been exposed to as having biological changes that are consistent with significant adversity. So that, that's sort of the, the secondary prevention, again, sort of identifying that population that's higher risk. But the foundation is we got to decrease the sources of family and child stress, right? I mean, that's, that's the universal primary prevention if you're looking at it from a toxic stress framework. But I think what we're trying to do in this policy statement is, is really say very clearly that that sort of public health approach a public health approach to sort of treat toxic stress actually is a public health approach to promote relational health, right? And so let's think about those examples that I gave you in terms of attachment and biobehavioral catch-up and child-parent psychotherapy. I mean, I'm not saying those are available in your area, but that's an opportunity for us to be advocates. But but what do they do? At, at the core, they're really about repairing strain relationships, right? They're trying to repair strain relationships. And, and all those um, social determinants of health and biomarkers what they're really doing is to try to identify and address potential barriers to relational health. And then there are lots of programs out there to try and promote the capacities for two-generational relational health, right? How to develop and sustain those safe, stable, and nurturing relationships. So, so I know we all want an algorithm. We all want a straightforward, this is what you do type thing, almost like ACLS or PALS, you know? But I don't think we, we can do that because I think you know, each situation is different. We have to treat each person as an individual and, and, and we also need to understand our population. You know, and, and another thing I would say is that it's a process, you know? I like the, the analogy to growth mindset, right? That, uh, you know, we're already doing a lot of this work already. I think what we need to do is try and organize it in a logical way. Um, where are we on that public health pyramid? And what is it that we're doing in our individual practices? You know, are we doing co-located mental health services? Um, or probably the place to start actually is more of a common factors approach, right? That's probably the square one is, you know, having those positive relationships with the positive regard with families, developing shared goals and being optimistic. I mean, um, that's probably our, our, our base level in terms of, of tertiary um, treatments. Um, we may want to start with just screening for um, postpartum depression, right, which the academy has endorsed. And we may want to think about being involved in Reach Out and Read. So that's probably the initial level, things that a lot of practices are already doing. So you could say, hey, I'm doing Reach Out and Read. That's my universal primary prevention. You know, we're trying to promote those safe, stable, nurturing relationships through Reach Out and Read. And, and we're identifying maternal depression. So I'm trying to draw, identify an early barrier to relational health. And um, we're doing a common factors approach when we find things. Well, that, that's fine. You're probably already doing that. And if not, those are opportunities. And once you have that on your belt, then maybe then we start adding things. So now maybe you want to think about having co-located mental health services, which I know you're a big advocate for, and and start looking for food or housing insecurity here as in terms of screening. And then maybe think about uh, finding some local parenting groups that can help. And so so I think that that you, you, there's a, like you said, right, there's a lot to do. And I think we want an, an algorithm, use this ACE score and this sort of thing. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but I think we still can apply a public health framework to make sense out of it. I hope that helps. Yeah. I mean, of course, my head is spinning because I keep thinking like, wow, there's so many cool things you could do. And, you know, I think about my my own practice and the evolution that we've had. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, for example, people that are thinking about postpartum depression, you know, that it feels overwhelming. Like, first of all, the mom is not my patient, but the mom is the key to or one of the keys to the baby thriving. So that's a universal prevention. And there is nothing like saying to a mom, it sounds like you're having a really hard time. How can I help? Or that I hear you, I see you, and it's okay that you're not super overjoyed about, you know, for me to be able to say to a mom, 
hey, listen, I've been where you are. And it's not like you get up in the morning and go, God, I hope I could be a crappy parent and cry all day. That's not, you know, but it happens. So let's do this together. And I think we don't think about the impact that we have as pediatricians with the stuff that we do day in, day out. And, And I think we don't maybe recognize enough how impactful we are. Well, yeah, I think we're doing a lot of this already and don't realize it. And I think there's some some foundational things here that, that we sort of take for granted. The first is that as pediatricians, I think more than other sort of medical professionals, we think in a two-generational manner. You know what I mean? At least two-generational. I mean, I think when we're talking about relational health, you could even think about it as being multi-generational, right? And so, you know, again, we tend to think dyadically in terms of caregiver and parent and child. And so I think there's a recognition on our part sort of just in our bones that, you know, if the parents are in survival mode, if they're not having their most basic needs that met, you know, or if they're being triggered due to ACEs that they had as a child, well, then the kids are going to be in survival mode too, right? And both the kids and adults, we tend to learn better when we're not in survival mode, right? We need to be able to have our prefrontal cortex and hippocampus engaged and not having the amygdala drive in the bus. So, so I think that as pediatricians, we understand we have to help the parents to help the kids and that it's hard to provide a safe, stable, nurturing relationship if you never had them. So we do need to support parents and caregivers to, to be the best versions of themselves in order to provide those relationships for the kids. And by providing a safe, stable, nurturing relationship to today's kids, we're increasing the chances that they'll do it to the next generation. But if we're failing this generation, we're just making it harder for the next and the next and the next. I think that's an interesting way that you could say to a parent about, sounds like things have been really hard for you or you experienced some things that were difficult for you. And I know that you don't want that for your child. So let's figure out how we can tackle some of these things. And, you know, you can start with low hanging fruit, you know, um, like read to your child. And when you read, look at them and, oh my gosh, did you see how he smiled at that? But also this idea that we're part of the circle around this child. Now, granted, we're not seeing them every day in all of those moments. But again, I think we shouldn't underestimate the impact that we can provide to a parent that we're there to support them, not to be critical or, you know, tell them what to do. But we're there to say, hey, I see that this is hard for you. I'm here to help you, too. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think that that. you know, that's something that pediatricians sort of get right. I mean, we, we understand two generational and we understand that it's critically important that we take our time when we build rapport with patients and families. You know, so I think we recognize that that solid therapeutic relationship is really our only lever for change, right? I mean, if we don't Ooh, have I that. I love that. Say, say that again. <laughs> well, I think, you know, if we don't solid have that. Solid therapeutic. What was yeah, that? Well, if we, if we don't have a solid therapeutic relationship, you know, that's really our only lever for change. Right. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, we focus on the child's behavior and those are the things we want to try and uh, address. But the best way to address that actually is through the parent's behavior because they're with them 24 seven. We see them for only a certain amount of time during the day. And so, you know, in the infant mental health circles, they talk about a parallel processing, right, about how uh, the way we interact with parents and, and uh, caregivers, we're hoping that's going to get translated in the way that the parents and caregivers interact with their child 24-7. It's almost like the principle of, you know, if we send a kid to see a, a physical therapist or a speech therapist, it's now not how often they actually see the speech therapist that predicts outcomes. It's the ability of the speech therapist or a physical therapist to teach the parent to do it 24-7. 
that predicts the outcomes. So it's the same sort of thing is that if, if we're not able to have, again, relational health, a therapy relationship with the family, then we're sort of up a creek, right? Because all those public health approaches I just talked about, all those tertiary treatments, all those screens, all those universal primary interventions are going one ear and out the other. We're sort of wasting our breath. And so I think that uh, relational health is not only dyadic, it's also the basis for what we try and do. It's our only real lever for changing what's going on in that child's world. That is a brilliant kind of conceptualization. I love that so much. And it, you know, after doing these podcasts now for a year, and I've done some with parents, I've done lots with, you know, psychiatrists and what it, for me, what a lot of it boils down to is relationships. I mean, we have to be smart. We got to know about, you know, otitis and prescribing antibiotics and, you know, differential diagnoses. But if I don't have a connect with a family, it's going to be hard for me to do my job. And when I've asked parents who have had children with, you know, chronic scary diseases or lots of mental health issues, one of the biggest tips for them is sit down. When you go into a room, sit down. That's not hard to do. I think we can all do that. Sit down, look at them, hear what they have to say. And and that is powerful. Just yeah, that. No yeah. Being present, right? Being present. You know, in, in the in the policy statement, we go a little bit into this emerging data set that talks about biobehavioral synchrony. So biobehavioral synchrony is sort of those magic moments that you've talked about on other shows where there's attunement and engagement and they're on the same, literally on the same page. And I think that doesn't only happen in childhood, it happens across the lifespan. I mean, you know when you're in sync with someone and it is at a biological level. I mean, your heart rates can synchronize, your EEG rhythms can synchronize. I mean, there is a biobehavioral synchrony. And I think that that's those beautiful, magical moments that we're looking for. And I think that's what we all strive for as human beings is to be in sync with others. And I think that's what you're getting at there is, is that, you know, I, I have a lot of people I follow on med Twitter, as I know you do too. And for a long time, I kept hearing my friends talk about this Ted Lasso guy, Ted Lasso. Oh my God, you know, I love Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso. You know, and so I was like, you know, why are all, and they're all my pediatricians. They're all pediatricians who are going crazy about Ted Lasso. I'm like, what's the big deal about this guy? So I sat down and watched it. And that's why it's all social emotional. He doesn't know Jack about soccer. <laughs> he lived it, right? But he oh. knows people. He knows social emotional learning. He knows how to promote people. He knows how to be in sync with people. And so I think that's why it's resonated with my pediatrician friends so much is that, is that that's why you go into pediatrics. That's what you think is important. And that's why he resonates with us so well. I love Ted Lasso so much. The first time I heard, I saw the commercial and I thought, oh, this just looks like another silly thing. Right. And then I heard Brene Brown say that she thought it was brilliant because I love everything <laughs> that Brene Brown does. Uh -huh. Shout out to Unlocking Us because it's a brilliant podcast. The other thing, I just saw this fabulous movie last night. It brought my husband and I to tears because it was so beautiful. It's called Coda. Uh -huh. C-O-D-A. It's on Apple Plus. Um, it's about a young woman whose parents are deaf and her brother, and she serves as the translator and the stressors of that on her. But this incredible, I don't know, it's like not Phoenix rising so much, but her flourishing, I think is yeah. the word. Yeah. It is beautiful. There is a scene with her dad, and I won't say anything more because you have to watch it to see it. 
And I mean, I almost started sobbing. It was that <laughs> beautiful. Well, and, so sync. I mean, I think that's what, re- I mean, people talk about emotional resonance, right? Being in sync. I mean, I think that's the essence of, of the human experiences. I think we're biologically programmed to need that. I mean, that's the reason we're here is that we, we're social beings. But I think society in a million different ways now is telling people that if you value empathy, you're weak. Or if you have strong emotions, there's something wrong with you. And I think that's really damaging. I think we need to do a much better job as a society of help, of helping people embrace their emotions. I know you've used them. You've, I think it was you that told, told me about using the analogy of frozen, right? I mean, I love the analogy of frozen as, as that, you know, uh, here she thinks she has this horrible secret she needs to hide. Um, when reality, it's her superpower. She just needs to learn how to control it. And I think it's the same thing with our emotions. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with strong emotions. I say that a million times every day in my practice that it's okay, particularly now with the pandemic, to be angry, to be frustrated, to be disappointed. That's part of being human. There's nothing wrong with that. And I want that those kids to acknowledge that their strong emotions are their superpower. It's not something to hide. It's something to learn how to control and harness and, and capture that emotional energy and channel it into something constructive. So I spend a lot of time in my practice talking about your passions. What is it you love to do? Um, and so if they can ta- channel that emotional energy and channel it into music or into art or into um, Legos or even Rubik's Cube, I mean, now you're building skills, right? And so, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of great analogies out there. And I think that the, the entertainment industry is doing a great job by helping us understand there's nothing wrong with strong emotions. We need to embrace them. I wish I could take ownership for the Frozen, but that wasn't oh, me. So okay, there's some other lovely person that did that. <laughs> and I have to say one, I feel like that synchrony right now because I'm so excited about what you're saying. And so it must be, there must be some resonance there. There you go. And the other thing that they, that we are somewhat out of synchrony in our society right now, yeah. and it makes us angry at each other. And yeah. it is paralyzing a bit because... Yeah. We, we are so frustrated and feel like that there's something, I don't know, almost like we're trying to trick people or I, I don't know what it is, but it feels so bad. So it can't be good, this place that we're in. Well, I think you know, that's one of the reasons in the, in the policy statement, we actually have a whole section on the role and toll of social isolation, right? And I think that's the problem is that we're being, you know, people think, oh, you know, division, you know, that's okay. You know, and competition's okay. You know, that's sort of the basis of capitalism, that sort of thing. I mean, I, you know, but there's a whole different level there where we start dehumanizing, right? There's a whole other level there when we start isolating. And I think that's, that's the problem is that I think we need to start seeing things like inequities and systemic racism as being clear and present threats to our collective relational health. So earlier you mentioned about concentric circles, and I think that really is a good image that I use a lot, that here we've got this dyad between the parent and the child, and, and we want to try and make that relational health sort of go well, right? Because, you know, if, again, if the, if the parent's in survival mode, then the kid's in survival mode, and then we're not learning skills, we're not becoming resilient. So we want to make that relational health work, but then there's circles around that. So the next circle then would be sort of the family, right? So is there intimate partner violence in the home, which is going to hinder relational health of the dyad, or is there family resilience and connection? And then the next circle, you've got the neighborhood, right? Is there neighborhood violence or are there safe places to play and learn? And then the next circle out, now you've got sort of like the employment, right? I mean, is there discrimination on employment or are there opportunities to advance? And then the next layer is sort of just random random strangers, right? I mean, are there microaggressions or is there kindness 
And then at the societal level, you know, sort of the next level as a whole, are there inequities in division or is there diversity and inclusion? And so I, I think that we have to acknowledge that all those other spheres of relational health are going to directly impact the relational health of the dyad. And so the bottom line is relational health is a societal issue, right? And, you know, the Robert Wood Johnson likes talking about building a culture of health. And I think that before we do that, what we really need to do is build a culture of relational health. Right. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking about just some of the things, just my own journey. And I think about like my grandmother, who was like my saving grace and provided a safe place. And then it was school because I loved school. I loved learning. And the teachers were supportive because, and and I did well, I flourished there. And then medical school, kind of, that was kind of a toxic stress, right? Uh-huh. But there were a couple of people, you know, your your friends, your colleagues, and a couple of those doctors that didn't teach by humiliation and intimidation. Yeah. yeah. And then, honestly, for me, getting into the AAP was that kind of, I don't know, that environment. Like when I went to a leadership forum and I met people like you and there was this excitement, I was just like, this is my place. This is where I belong. And these are my people. Well, if we can create that around, you know, it wasn't that everything was sunny for me. But there were all those concentric circles that lifted me up. And yeah. I forgot my husband because he's like my, my rock. So I'm going to give him a shout out. Sure. Yeah. No, I don't think there's any question that that's the synchrony I was talking about. I and mean, I think yeah. that, uh, that a lot of pediatricians that are part of the academy, I suspect, are the same way. I mean, that was my story, too, is, you know, after being in practice for a couple of years, I, I felt like I knew what I had to do in clinic. But it was so obvious to me that there were things that were happening outside my practice walls that were in making it hard for me to help kids be healthy, um, things that I didn't feel like I had control over. And that can lead to a lot of despair and burnout. And I think when you become a part of the academy and you talk to people that are advocates and passionate about helping kids, then you're like, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, they see it too. <laughs> the system's broken, right? Um, and I think that that's very, that's that synchrony. That's that sense of, of I'm not crazy. I'm not being gaslit. You know, I mean, I, other people see it too. That I think is very reassuring. And I think that's how, how we deal with stress. Well, to know that there are 67,000 plus yeah. pediatricians that are in it for the same reason, you know, because we care about kids. And so we can get excited. I mean, we see awful things and challenging things and scary things, but we haven't lost hope. You know, we haven't lost hope that there's nothing we can do because then I think if we were in despair, you know, but, but we just, and it's not a goal where you attain it. It's a purpose and a mission because there's always something else, right? There's always some new challenge. Like who knew that, we would have COVID. I have to think in my heart trying to figure out the whole anti-vaccine thing, because that for me, it's like the pit of my stomach. And yet there must be a way to connect with people who have so much vitriol because I know they care about their kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's this uh, religious scholar, his name is Richard Rohr. And he says that pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot right now is there's a lot of pain being transmitted, right? I think that we probably aren't doing a very good job as a society at helping people understand that it's okay to have strong emotions, but it's what you do about it. 
And I think that because we've sort of poo-pooed emotional intelligence for so long that it's that it's you know that emotions are weak, that we have people doing a lot of transmitting and not a lot of transforming. And I think that's where we can play a major role early on. And and you know, I spend a lot of time talking with kids when they're older, you know, you've, you've already had specialists on your program talk about, you know, infant mental health and early relational health. And, and, and obviously this policy statement is built upon that, that work, but, but I think it's true for older kids and adolescents and even adults. And so when I'm talking to, you know, uh, say an eight-year-old about, you know, what brings you joy, what are your passions, and then try and help them understand, well, that's the thing you need to do um, when your brother's crazy, <laughs> you know, and that there's nothing wrong with strong emotion, but it's what you do about it. I'm secretly hoping the parents are listening too, <laughs> right? Again, there's a parallel processing going on sure. there. That, you know, that, that it's okay to have strong emotions, right? But you have to BYOJ. You got to bring your own joy. Um, and, and, <laughs> I love that. Uh, you got to BYOJ, bring your own joy. Find those things that you love to do and acknowledge that that's the thing to do when I'm overwhelmed. That's the thing to do when my brother's making me crazy. Because if I start yelling and screaming, then I'm the one's going to get in trouble. If I can stop, walk away and do one of those healthy distractions. Now I'm, like I said before, I'm harnessing that emotional energy and channeling it into something that's going to make me a better person someday. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that whether we're talking about, you know, whether wearing masks or getting vaccines, I mean, there are a lot of scared people out there. There are a lot of people that have been hurt financially. And as a consequence, we're seeing a lot of anger and, and transmission of that trauma. And yeah, so I don't think I have the answer on those issues because it hits me in the gut too. I mean, believe me, you know, as a pediatrician, you know, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I try and make things as simple as I can, you know, and, and in my mind, you know, you, you get a shot so you don't die because <laughs> we know if you get right. a shot, you know, Seems you're like not going to die. It should like be it obvious, should be but, simple, right? but it should also be obvious too, that you wear a mask so you don't kill someone else. Yeah. So the masks aren't about you. You're doing that because you may be asymptomatic and you may kill someone else. And one of the increasingly frustrating things I've seen is, is people who had COVID and did very well, and as a consequence now think there's no need to get a shot or wear a mask. The truth is there's clear data. You know, if you get the vaccine, even if you've had COVID, you're, you're less likely to get it again with Delta. You're, you're half as likely to get it again. And again, you're not going to kill someone else. So, I mean, when you make it simple like that, you know, how can you say, I love my neighbor, but I'm not going to wear a mask, uh, you know? And so I think we have to cut through all the political spin and say, you know, if you haven't had COVID, get a shot because then you're not likely to die. And whether you've had COVID or not, you should get a shot and you should wear a mask because you're going to be less likely to kill someone else. Yeah, it should be. It should be simpler. And I think, you know, we all want this to be behind us and it just becomes sort of this point of this flashpoint of anger of I'm yeah. right and you're wrong and you're yeah. treading on my my freedom. And but, you know, if you end up in the hospital on a ventilator, you aren't free. You yeah, are, I think. Yeah, I think it comes down to you don't understand my pain. And I yeah. think I think that's the problem is that I think there were a lot of people. You know, think about people in the restaurant industry and the service industries and travel industries and, and just small businesses that got hurt financially really bad and see masks as people saying, I'm more concerned about the virus than you. And so I think I think we have to try and bridge that gap of understanding and see why that makes people so angry. And so, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I agree with that perspective in any way, but I, I think we have to try and reach them, meet them where they are and understand. So, you know, I often use a phrase in my practice too, that hurt people, hurt people. 
right? Yes. So if someone's being angry, if someone's trans transmitting that anger and frustration, you know, they've probably been hurt in some way. And the only way you heal that hurt is with kindness and understanding and trying to be in sync with them because we all know what happens when we start finger pointing and, 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 and uh, calling names. It doesn't get any better from there. Right. Back to bring your own joy and, yeah. you know, random acts of kindness and find those, find those common points, which sometimes can be their child. You yeah. know, I, I think we, we can, we may not agree, but we can both agree that we want your, we want what's best for your, for your child. Absolutely. Well, this has all been so wonderful. And I, for me, it's a shot in the arm to have a little bit of positive hope. I mean, I, it's hard to watch the news and I, you know, fear for, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan and, you know, now Haiti with, you know, another earthquake. I mean, as if people haven't been traumatized enough, you can't even trust the ground that you walk on, but you can only do what you can do and, and find those ways to find joy in your own life and share it with those that you can and, you know, send, send out your vibes to the universe. (laughs) Well, let me ask you my final question. I love to ask this of guests. If you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a med student resident, what would you say? Boy, I got to be honest with you. Residency for me was really hard. I mean, you mentioned medical school was hard for you. Medical school for me was was a, well, it wasn't so bad, but residency was brutal for me. And, and I think it's in part because of where I was in my, my life at that point. I mean, I was married, I had a new son. And so we moved to a new town. And so that was particularly hard for her. And I felt guilty that I wasn't there very much. And so I think that, like you were saying, toxic stress and, and survival mood. I mean, for me, residency was probably the, the most survival mood I've been in. And, and as a consequence, there really wasn't enough relational mood. <laughs> and so I probably need to do a public apology all my co-residents at the time because it was it was a tough time and so I think I think that if I were to try and I, I don't think I could do, do one thing I think I'd say two things the first is try to worry less right because when you're when you worry I think we tend to get defensive and, and to be uh, less relational and trust your instincts more those would be the two things that I would say and I think those are really hard things to do as as a resident in training because you know, I, I think that that to be a competent, empathic physician, I think it demands a little bit that you're sort of in that imposter syndrome thing, right? Because we're called to convey confidence and optimism and hope, right? And in order to promote healing and growth. But then we also have to have the humility and vulnerability to acknowledge and learn from mistakes. And so there's this constant tension, right, between what we're called to be, you know, and basically trained to be sort of omniscient and perfect um, versus, what really, <laughs> versus what we really are, right? I mean, we're yeah. human and fallible, right? Um, right? And so, you know, I think there's this great quote from the movie Darkest Hour, right? It's about Winston Churchill. And so he he feels the weight of his world on his shoulders, right? I mean, he has to decide, you know, am I going to, am I going to, you know, capitulate to Hitler? Am I going to fight him? You know, and, 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 you know, literally millions of lives are on his, on the line. And his wife knows that he's just torturing himself with second guessing. And she says, you are strong because you are imperfect and you are wise because you have doubts. And I think that for us to perform that same sort of magic for others, right, to sort of reframe their weaknesses and insecurities as being absolutely perfectly human, you know, and, and, and like you're saying, uh, the change the way parents see their kids. And uh, I, I think that process of healing and growth has to begin with ourselves, right? And so I would tell myself as a resident, you're strong because you're imperfect and you're wise because you have doubts. So dude, worry less and trust your instincts. More. <laughs> 
I love that. I, I, I'm a huge worrier. I get like A pluses for worry. Yeah. And, and I do think you have to have some worry. I mean, it's, it's what keeps us on our toes sometimes. No. But, but I, another movie that I love is Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks. Yeah. And he's with the Russian spy who's going to get handed back over and things are probably not going to go well for him. And Tom Hanks says to him, aren't you worried? And he says, would it help? And I think, and I think about that often, like, does it, I mean, a little bit is okay, but it gets in the way. And, you know, I, I would also say residency was a challenge for me. And honestly, were it not for my husband, I think I would have like thrown in the towel many times, but I am so glad that you are imperfect and have doubts because (laughs) I don't think that you would have produced this body of work were it not for you continually trying to, you know, do things on behalf of kids and, and parents and, you know, making the place, the the world a better place. You are so kind. It's always good to talk. (laughs) Well, listen, thank you so much, Andy. I so appreciate you. And I am so happy that our paths crossed at an AAP event. Me too. All right. Well, listen, take care and have a great day. You too. I loved this conversation, and it is one of the reasons that I am so passionate about taking care of kids. It's about really, you know, finding that magic in the relationships that we have with children and helping them thrive and flourish. So here are my takeaways, and I also have a long list of resources in the show notes in case you want to look into this a little bit deeper. Number one. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Andy Garner with us to discuss the recent AAP's policy statement, Prevention of Childhood Toxic Stress, Partnering with Families and Communities to Promote Relational Health. Number two, the 1998 ACEs study, and if you haven't read it, you just have to, identified that there was a link to what happened to you and health and behavior outcomes. Now, this was a big study done in adults, but What followed was an explosion of research on toxic stress, the biology, physiology, and its impact. Now the science is being translated to the clinical space, and we begin to look for solutions. So how do we prevent those adverse childhood experiences? Or if they've occurred, how do we mitigate their impact? The bottom line, it's all about relationships. Number three, and this one is really important, Adversity is not destiny. If bad and scary things happen to you as a child, it does not mean that you will live an unproductive life. Number four, safe, stable, nurturing relationships buffer and create positive experiences that are protective in the face of adverse childhood experiences. Work by Christina Bethel found that for children who were impacted by adversity, safe, stable, nurturing relationships allowed them to flourish. Consider that for children without ACEs, but who did not have stable relationships, they struggled more than those with stable relationships and adversity. Again, it's about relationships. Number five, think of ACEs and social determinants of health as barriers and start there. Consider the safe, stable, nurturing relationships in the child's life those that are dyadic, but even broader, those that are two or even multi-generational, and find the collaborative partners to build systems that will lift kids up and beyond ACEs. 
This is when we really need to reach out to our community partners. Number six, the public health model is the strategy. Primary universal prevention using the growth mindset, secondary targeted screening and identification, looking for ACEs, social determinants of health, racism, poverty, neighborhood violence, and then the tertiary step, which is treatment. For example, PCIT, trauma-focused CBT, those strategies that repair strained relationships. Number seven, so where do you start at the primary care level? Encourage and model relational health. This is something that I discussed in the um, infant maternal health in episode number 49 with Rena Minky. Screen for postpartum depression and link to resources. Ask about barriers such as food deserts and financial hardships and link to resources. And then consider the Reach Out and Read program, which is really not about books. It's about relationships. Number eight, consider the concentric circles around the child and find the helpers with the child caregiver dyad at the center, then family surrounding, neighborhood, job, community. Being alone at the center, the example has been our demonstrative social isolation of the COVID pandemic, is not good for children or anyone. Number nine, a solid therapeutic relationship with our parents and patients is our only lever for change. Sit with that one for a minute. That's the time to sit down look at our patients, hear them, and be with them. Number 10, for our own resilience, it is because we are imperfect and have doubts, not in spite of them, that we become caring clinicians. We too need those safe, stable, nurturing relationships. And I loved his BYOJ, bring your own joy. Finding passion and purpose is not just for kids. Thank you so much again for everything that you do for children. And I hope you BYOJ today. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.